Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. Have you gone to a Black Lives Matter protest in recent weeks? Since the police killing of George Floyd, more white Americans, including residents in our state, have shown support for the movement. But some question how serious America really is when it comes to confronting systemic or institutional racism. Today, where we live, we revisit something we've talked about before on the show, and that's restrictive zoning in Connecticut towns. These local laws prevent affordable housing in many towns and keep the state largely segregated. Coming up, we hear from State Senator Saoud Anwar, chair of the Connecticut General Assembly's Housing Committee, about what could be accomplished in the legislature's special session next month. We'll also hear from the woman who leads the New Haven Housing Authority. Karen Bois walton will explain why affordable housing should not be confined to just Connecticut cities. First, joining the show is Jacqueline Rabe-Thomas. She's a reporter for Connecticut Mirror at ctmirror.org, and she's written about housing segregation for both the Mirror and ProPublica. Jackie, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, we had you on, I believe it was last year, when you did a, a series of stories for ProPublica focused on how restrictive zoning laws are in Connecticut and the consequences. I want you to remind us what was some of the reaction from town officials in the suburbs you profiled. Sure. So I did a series of stories just sort of highlighting how restrictive and how hard it is to build in some of the state's most wealthiest communities and essentially pointed out that places like Weston requires two acres of zoning on 99.5% of their land or places like Westport have built, you know, minimal amount of affordable housing. And when they have, it's in one tiny section of town. Um, and, and so the response to that largely was, um, twofold. It was either we completely um, see this happening in our community and an influx of local examples with pleas to write about those those communities and what's going on in those communities that communities are essentially shutting out affordable housing projects in their communities. And then also from local officials in some of those communities who I interviewed during during this series who said, hey, you know, we're trying, you know, there's a political reality here as well. So we're doing what we can and we're, we're trying to push forward. But you got to you got to remember that, you know, people's houses are, you know, their biggest asset and people are really protective of that. Mm. Uh, now that I mentioned the latest Black Lives Matter protests that uh, you're seeing a lot of suburban towns, largely white uh, residents coming out and saying that they support this movement, they want to see change, including police accountability. But when we drill down to other issues of systemic racism, like housing segregation, the policies that have been, pla- been in place for decades, do you think that there's momentum now, Jackie, to make these zoning changes? I think there's a divide in the Democratic Party to to either push forward with this or not. Um, I, I think that 
there are many people in the legislature who would like to see some changes on on this front. You have Senate Democrats who came out last Friday on Juneteenth and said, let's let's tackle this issue. And you also had 40 members of the Progressive Caucus in the House, which makes up almost half of the, the Democratic Caucus in the State House of Representatives saying, let's tackle this issue. Um, but you also have um, some of those in leadership positions who are saying, you know, that's a big, big thing to tackle. We haven't been able to do this in decades. Um, I don't know if we're going to be able to have the time and momentum to do it now. Mm. You talked about uh, ways that towns are shutting out affordable housing, town officials saying that there is a political reality uh, to making change. I wanted you to to talk more about uh, the ways that towns uh, keep affordable housing out of their communities and what some of the rationale is. Sure. So one of the most common examples is changing the character of the community. Um, And so, you know, what does that mean? It's very subjective of what sort of what the character of the community is. And, And so some folks, civil rights advocates and developers will say, you know, that's code for saying we don't want minorities or people from different socioeconomic groups moving into our communities and, and, you know, changing what's going on. Um, on more specific examples, like if we build more affordable housing, then our schools will just be jam-packed. Well, the reality is that, again, in places like Weston and Westport, their school-age population is actually declining. Um, so this argument that they're not going to have room for additional students that may come um, it doesn't quite fit reality when you start to look at the facts. Um, you know, there is the reality that many of the affordable housing projects that do come to fruition um, are built for just the elderly or are built just for, you know, a one bedroom or an efficiency. Well, that's not really accommodating families. And so um, there are ways to shut out additional families from moving into your communities. Um, Other examples have been, you know, we don't have the sewage capacity. There's no public sewers in town or there's no sidewalks or the traffic patterns will be too crowded. Um, what I saw through sitting through hours of public testimony and public hearings for specific projects when working on this project has been that I saw a developer offer to pay for a sidewalk in one instance. I saw a fire marshal say that their fire chiefs or that their their people aren't trained to draw water from an aquifer. And then I had firefighters reach out to me privately and say, actually, we are trained on that. That's a standard to be trained to, to get your certificate in the state of Connecticut. Um, so sort of the facts on the ground of what's being said at these hearings doesn't always match reality. You mentioned uh, the town of Weston after State Senator Will Haskell tweeted about an inspiring Black Lives Matter protest uh, in that town. Uh, protesters came out and said, we need greater diversity in Weston. You shared some stats about the town's demographics. Uh, some residents may have never really thought about how much affordable housing is available in their town. Can you give us an example of a place like Weston? What does it look like? Sure. So 99.5% of that town is zoned for two acre single family homes. And so what that means is nearly everywhere in town, if you want to build, it has to be a single family home. And the land prices there are really big. And so not surprisingly, then the an, an average home there 
is selling for about $700,000. I don't know how many people from lower socioeconomic status can afford a $700,000 home. So you're essentially shutting out diversity by zoning almost your entire town for two acres. Um, What that means is 1% of your population in Weston is black. you know, similar low threshold for Hispanic residents in that community. I mean, and it's not just Weston, it's Orange. 1.8% of its residents are Black. Madison, 0.5% of its residents are Black. And each one of these communities have specific examples where affordable housing has been tried to be built and it's been shut down. I believe the Partnership for Strong Communities has a great resource where people can look up their individual towns to see what it looks like in terms of the housing available for single family or multifamily units. I'd I'd love to share that with our listeners if the producer can tweet that out uh, during the show. But again, uh, with me on Zoom today, Jacqueline Rabe Thomas, reporter for the Connecticut Mirror. She's written about housing segregation for both the Mirror and ProPublica. Uh, We're talking about this today. It's something that has been brought up, especially because of Jackie's reporting in the last year. Uh, Will the towns in Connecticut become serious about looking at the zoning laws uh, that prevent affordable housing from coming up where you may live? You can join our conversation as well, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, In a couple of minutes, we're going to hear from someone that Jackie profiled uh, trying to find an affordable uh, house or apartment uh, in a place that wasn't in a city. But I wanted you just to back up, uh, Jackie, and when I talked about policies that have been around for decades, why towns look the way they do, a lot of that has to do with policies like redlining. Can you briefly talk about uh, these policies and how they've impacted, again, how towns have been structured for so long? Sure. So if you look at places like Hartford, where your next guest lived for a very long time, um, or Bridgeport, or name your major metro area in Hartford, um, you look at the share of housing that is um, reserved for low-income residents, and they've largely taken on this um, this responsibility to house people who can't necessarily afford Connecticut's high housing costs. Connecticut has one of the highest housing costs in the country. And so um, your Hartford and Bridgeports and New Havens, they're really proud to, to be a partner in that. Um, and But what it, but the re- responsibility comes also some ability to pay for local services like schools or sidewalk repairs. And when such a large share of your tax base is income restricted, um, just because they're, the jobs that they're working in aren't um, able to raise very much revenue locally, it means raising money for the schools or for the sidewalk repairs that those communities desperately need um, isn't always available because Connecticut relies so heavily on our property tax to pay for local services. Um, When it comes to sort of the historic side of redlining, you know, if you overlay a map of where places were redlined in the past where people struggled to get home loans, um, and if you overlay that with our segregation patterns of today, not much has changed. Um, And so you can see that you sort of the it, it lives on in Connecticut. Redlining lives on in sort of the, the remnants of that remains today. 
And when you're talking about redlining, again, these were areas that were parceled out uh, um, where people could buy homes, uh, black families and other minorities kept in certain neighborhoods while uh, white families uh, could live elsewhere and, and find a way to get a mortgage and buy a home rather easily compared to people of color. Right. And I should say that the state's um, primary source of building affordable housing um, largely is focused on rental. It's not focused on home ownership. Um, and so efforts to there have been some efforts to infuse home ownership into some of these communities so that so that people can build equity and build wealth. Um, but that has not largely has not been the approach of Connecticut. For low-income people of color, finding housing in the suburbs can be an insurmountable challenge. One of the people Jackie Rabe Thomas talked to in her series uh, was Crystal Carter. She now lives in Simsbury. She's joining us now on the phone. Crystal, welcome to the show. Um, Thank you for having me. So you and your family have been living in Hartford. Uh, Tell us about why you were looking uh, to some suburban areas and, and what your experience was like trying to find a place to live outside the capital city. Um, I'll start off with um, why I was looking for housing in the um, suburban areas. My children was crack children, so meaning that they was going to Simsbury um, public schools anyway. So I had a choice of to stay, <clears throat> excuse me, in the Hartford district, which was able to let my kids stay in the school system, which was one of the most important things for me was to keep my children in the suburban school, schools. Um, with that being said, I would have had to stay in Hartford. The places that I was looking in Hartford, um, it wasn't really adequate places to live that was actually available to take the certificate that I had, which is a housing voucher, a federal housing voucher. Um, the outskirts of Hartford, which in the, it is the inner city, the West End, um, Capitol Avenue area, the rents was too high for the certificate that could be used. Some of the places that I could use the certificate in, it wasn't suitable for children that lived there. It was mice, bugs, mm. you name it. So my thing was to try to get into this, this um, suburban areas. That wasn't really good either because nobody really wouldn't take the certificate that I had. They didn't want us, the suburban areas didn't want us. Mm. So... I, I just kept trying and trying and trying to find housing. And I was at the verge of losing my certificate because I could not find adequate housing that could actually take the certificate amount. Mm-hmm. The certificate amount is was hundreds and hundreds of dollars lower, lower than what some of the rental places would even upset, accept. Uh, Jackie, yeah. talk talk a little bit more. Uh, hold on one sec, Crystal. I just wanted to get Jackie in on this. Uh, when we talk about how these rentals are priced and the idea that a lot of these places won't even accept a certificate uh, that Crystal had, I mean, why is that allowed to happen in uh, our state? I mean, it sounds to me like discrimination. So it is discrimination and it is illegal in Connecticut to deny someone to live in a unit because they plan to pay with an affordable housing voucher. Um, That being said, it doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Um, There are a group of civil rights attorneys that that fight said discrimination, um, but 
that doesn't mean that it doesn't thrive in Connecticut still. Um, you know, I, I followed Crystal around um, for some time and the amount of the number of people who turned her down, um, some saying because they don't accept a voucher um, directly to her um, was surprising. I, I'm sure it wasn't surprising to her because she's been dealing with this for some time, but um, you know, there's laws on the books, but then there's enforcement of the laws and um it, it doesn't always come to fruition. As far as her being able to struggling to find a place in Simsbury where her children go to school, I mean, that's a direct result of that town not building enough affordable housing and the high cost of living. The place where she actually ended up moving, the landlord took a hit on it just because he wanted to be part of a solution to help people from different um, in income brackets be able to move into his community. And so um, I don't know how many landlords are willing to take under market value. Mm. Crystal, it took you almost a year to find this place in Simsbury. What's it been like uh, living in Simsbury? Um, it's been peaceful for me and my children. Um, I actually like living out here. I haven't had no problems as of yet since I've been here. So I, I love it. Mm. And uh, your children are happy that you're able to live closer to where they're going to school? Absolutely. Um, I can say for my children, they have friends out here anyway. So it was a little bit easier for them and their friends and the family. And my landlord, I just want to point out that he did a wonderful job by accepting me and my family in here. He has been nothing but wonderful since we got here. So I really have no complaints um, where I live at. There is no sidewalks. There is no playgrounds. But we managed to still love and be able to be here. Mm. Well, Crystal Carter, we're glad that you found a place for you and your family, and we appreciate you talking to us here on the show. Thank you, Crystal. You're welcome. Also with us is Jackie Rabe Thomas, reporter for Connecticut Mirror. She's going to stick around as we continue talking about, again, zoning laws here in our state. Coming up after the break, we're going to hear from the director of the or the president of the New Haven Housing Authority, which has a wait list with thousands of Connecticut residents waiting to find an affordable place to live. You think they're all New Haven residents? Think again. More after the break. You can join us too. 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathancho. Did you ever wonder why black and white neighborhoods in Connecticut and around our country are so unequal? The New York Times broke it down in a recent article saying the explanation is historical and complex, involving race-restrictive housing covenants that prevented house home sales to minorities, banks that discriminated against people of color seeking to borrow money to buy homes, and strategic siting of interstate highways and public housing developments to solidify the boundaries of segregation. Today, we're talking about another reason segregation persists in our state. It's because of exclusionary zoning laws, which prevent many communities outside our major cities from being mixed income and diverse. My guest today is Jackie Rabe Thomas, a reporter for Connecticut Mirror. You can join us too, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Peter's calling in from the North Haven area. 
area. Peter, briefly, what was your experience? Okay, yes, I was a low-income renter in North Haven, and I was forced out because the town of North Haven got aware of, first we had permission. I had permission to live there from the health department. And then town officials found out they, they're trying to, for some reason, want to get this particular section of town redeveloped. And they have other plans, and they learned that I was a low-cost renter there. They forced the landlord to evict me because somebody, uh, town, I know who it is, town official came in and looked in the house and condemned it, saying it was structurally unsound, but I had it uh, inspected, uh, and they did an evaluation. I paid for an evaluation to have it. Uh, structurally uh, uh, surveyed, and he said it was totally sound. There was no risk of the house, you know, deteriorating. Mm. And uh, so they forced me out, and the town official told me right there at the town hall, he says, we don't want people like you living here. Move move to some place like Wallingford. Well, that's where I'm at, because I found a low-cost rental uh, in, in Wallingford, but uh, now I'm in the process of suing the town of North Haven because... Mm-hmm. They illegally entered the house without anybody giving permission. They need a mm-hmm. warrant to go in. And say, While I'm there in the in the back of the house, they come in the front door and in, inspect the house and say it's ready to collapse, mm-hmm. which is totally untrue. Well, I had Peter, to for, Peter, yeah. thank you for calling in. We're glad that you found a place in Wallingford. I'm sorry that happened to you in the town of North Haven area, uh, the North Haven. Uh, Jackie, when we hear a story like Peter's, does this happen often? What, what um, ability can towns have uh, to make people move because of the, the quality of the place they, they're living or how the, the town uh, sees it? So I think that there are a lot of places that are affordable currently that are in danger of no longer being um, affordable as places try to develop. And so there are laws that are meant to help protect um, some affordable housing. If they're deed restricted, um, then that, that can prevent it. Um, but you know, there it is sort of the impetus is on towns to at the at the current fight right now. The it, the impetus is on towns to decide how much of a priority is this. So, uh, taking his example, you know, if they deemed that that place was not suitable, okay, well, what is that town doing to develop some suitable, affordable housing in that community? Um, either naturally occurring through allowing things like accessory dwellings so that places can have multi units in a, in a property, or allowing the construction of affordable housing units. Um, There is a lot of affordable housing that is currently um, restricted for low-income residents that is in danger of expiring and the deeds coming offline in the near future, as well as there's a lot of housing throughout the state where people are currently living that is just subpar condition. Crystal um, mentioned it briefly during her remarks that some of the places that she looked at Mm -hmm. um, had mice, you know, there was mold, there was was just really bad living conditions. So um, it's a matter of who in places like the, the caller mentioned, it's whether or not the town sees that as their responsibility to sort of say, okay, well, where, how are we going to help make housing affordable in this community? It's mm. an interesting point. I wanted to bring into the dis- dis- discussion now Karen Bois walton She's president of Elm City Communities. This is the housing authority in New Haven. Karen, welcome to our show. Thank you. Great to be here. Good morning. 
So we just heard from Peter, who was living in North Haven, not too far from New Haven, uh, was told uh, he couldn't live where he was and now is in, in Wallingford. When we think about the people that the New Haven Housing Authority serves, uh, people might assume it's just people living in the city of New Haven. But are you hearing from people in North Haven, surrounding suburbs that need a place to live and the only affordable areas that they see uh, having space would be in a place like New Haven? The caller story is not an unfamiliar story for us at all. Um, our wait lists are longer than the number of families on our wait list exceed the number of families that we're able to, to serve um, in a given given year. Um, and when we look at our wait list, about a third of the families on our wait list come from the towns that immediately surround New Haven. So this is an issue uh, in the in the greater New Haven region of 15 towns. This is an, an issue that is present for all of those towns. Mm. When you talk about your wait list, give us an idea of how many families are waiting to find a place. Uh, we are currently housing uh, through either the public housing or section eight program, about 6,000 families. And we have currently between 7,500 and 8,000 families on the wait list. Um, and just to put that in some perspective, the, the annual turnover uh, is in the range of 300 families a year. So families that move out, no longer need the subsidy, um, have another opportunity, move to market rate. So it's going to take quite some time to work through a wait list of, of that size. Mm. Uh, tell us, uh, since you are, again, president of Elm City Communities and you see the need, uh, how difficult is it that because of the way Connecticut governments are structured in terms of the 169 uh, towns and these very specific zoning rules for each community, um, how it makes your job difficult to find places for these families who really deserve a place to live? Sure, we are a developer of housing, so we are building um, affordable housing, and we are very limited in where we can consider um, placing multifamily affordable developments because of policy on the books around zoning and land use, um, because of restrictions on where housing authorities can, can operate. So as the authority for the city of New Haven, we are limited um, by state statute to work within the 18 square miles of the city of New Haven when the need for affordable housing is much broader than that and when people's um, right to be able to access housing should exceed, uh, should go beyond those, those town lines. And so we've certainly been uh, focused on how we continue to invest in the city and the properties. We've been completely redeveloping all the properties that we own and manage, but no, recognize that that can't be the only approach. We have to be thinking about how we get affordable housing into other communities as well. Mm. And then Crystal Story is very familiar as well for the families that have that, that voucher and the ability to, the whole purpose of the voucher program is to give people mobility, give people choice, opportunity to live anywhere they'd like to live. Um, but, but if that housing is not available um, in other communities, it limits the effectiveness of that program. So that's an uh, additional, um, barrier that we're trying to help our families overcome.
Mm. So talk through, uh, Karen, some ways that the state could remedy this. You've mentioned, we've already talked about how Connecticut is extremely decentralized. That worsens segregation in our state. What are some steps uh, to solve uh, this, uh, to get more, uh, again, mixed use, uh, varied income uh, in not just places like New Haven, but North Haven and the surrounding suburbs? Absolutely. One, I think that we need to begin to take more of a regional approach to how we are funding and siting and developing um, housing. And um, that's going to also um, trigger us to look at how we approach our educational system as well, two areas that are uh, very challenging um, areas to move through a legislature that is very suburban dominated. Um, I think we have to look as a state at how we're incentivizing building that sort of middle level housing um, those, what people think of as starter homes or first homes, we need to be looking at as a state as to how we're incentivizing that in these uh, well-resourced communities. Um, there are places that have done things like a Fair Share Act, New Jersey, to, to look uh, to a neighbor fairly close that has um, enacted uh, by state law um, policy that requires a fair distribution of affordable housing throughout um, every community in Jersey. I think Connecticut could learn from a fair share act. Um, I think we need to make changes that require uh, every municipality, municipality to allow multifamily housing uh, by right um, and requires public utilities to make the kinds of investments that are necessary to allow multifamily development. Um, I think Jackie already mentioned zoning references have to have to be removed that talk about the preservation of the character of a town. We're talking about towns that have developed that character over uh, hundreds of years of policy that was rooted in racism and discrimination. So we, we cannot uh, keep on the books things that say, well, let's preserve what was created in that way. Um, and there, there are um, efforts that I think we need to pr promote around how we can allow public housing authorities to work in a more regional way around their development expertise and the resource that we bring, which is the federal dollar into affordable housing, which is what truly can make something affordable. Um, and we have to free up housing authorities to be able to look to develop broader than just their, their city town lines. Those would be a few things I, I think uh, would be Tremendous steps forward if Connecticut legislature could tackle. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677. You just heard Karen DuBois-Walton, president of Elm City Communities. This is the Housing Authority of New Haven. Also with us, Jackie Rabe-Thomas, reporter for the Connecticut Mirror. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. Uh, Sarah's calling in from Hartford. Sarah, you're on the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Um, so this is great. Of course, uh, Jackie's reporting has shined a light on this issue, and I think we have a lot of momentum right now. Um, legislators like Senator Anwar, you know, have, have a moment, really, uh, to make a change. And I just wanted to mention for listeners um, that we started a collaborative group called Desegregate Connecticut. Um, the group is organizing organizations and individuals to try to enact statewide land use reforms to make zoning laws more equitable. So we're really laser focused on this issue. And the folks that have been participating, planners, attorneys, architects, advocates, they're primarily from the suburbs. And so I just wanted to say, you know, there's a lot of hope, um, people rising to the occasion to, to, to try to address this issue. Um, and I think we, we have a moment. We've been talking about accessory apartments, missing middle housing, the role of sewers, um, the role of minimum lot sizes. So just wanted to make a plug for that. And we're online at desegregatect.org. So 
that. And, and Karen, Karen was one of our one of our speakers. So um, I think everybody's hopefully uh, highlighting this issue and, and seeing it as a major major problem. Well, thank you for calling in to let our listeners know about that resource, uh, Jackie Rib Thomas. It's good to hear that uh, regular citizens are getting involved because so often when we think about land use and local zoning boards. I mean, really, how active are local communities uh, to participate in this process unless they hear that affordable housing development might be coming? Then you might see some people coming out. Right. So, I mean, it's hard to know sort of who's a gadfly and who sort of speaks for the larger community. And so too often at the zoning boards, um, you know, you might have the people who are just directly impacted if you live right next door um, versus the person versus some people who maybe don't want to really ruffle feathers. They, their kids still have to go to school with these people, um, you know. I think the protests have been seen in two different way in some of these suburban communities. They've they've been seen as um, either really inspiring that hey, there's a rising up against those um, those people who are showing up, you know, against affordable housing in their communities. But I think some folks are also seeing it as hey, I saw you at that affordable housing um, planning and zoning meeting, and you were speaking against it. What's up? Um, so. I think it could go two ways of sort of where the momentum is and or maybe those people who were speaking up against an affordable housing project in town are now having sort of an aha moment of, hey, here's how we get diversity in my community. Um, so I, I think it remains to be seen whether or not the momentum will swell enough to um, really get some meaningful change done in the legislature. I should mention that um, there are many communities who are not suited to build affordable housing. There are 63 of the state's Hundred sixty nine towns that have no housing authority, um, and so you know that's almost that's more than a third of our municipalities in the state that don't have a housing authority. Um, so if we're talking about building, um, to to Karen's point about the ability of of certain communities being able to, like a New Haven, having the authority to build in other communities and taking a more regional approach, um, I'm sure that some of those communities that have no housing authority are nearby hers. Mm. Uh, Karen, when we look again at local zoning laws, the fact that, again, these towns have so much control of how or what kind of development comes into their communities, often we, as Jackie mentioned, the maintaining character of the town is one of the reasons why these uh, projects are turned down. I mean, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on, on how that can be changed because, again, our governments here are so decentralized. There's so much power within a town uh, to want to keep things as they are. Yeah, I'm hoping that in this this moment where um, across the nation we are struggling with the, the legacy and current day um, demonstrations of, of racism um, and a desire to move into anti-racist act, action, I hope that people will take this opportunity to really start to notice things that had just gone unnoticed um, up until this point. Um, people may have lived in uh, communities that lack diversity and not paid that much attention. And I hope in this moment, they will start to pay attention. I hope they'll start to um, dig into some of the, the ideas and, and policies that have led to and sustained them, the communities looking the way they are. And I hope they'll raise their voice because I think, um, I, I think that what's heard most loudly is the opposition, but I think that there's a whole large group in a community 
that um, needs to also reach out, uh, attend zoning boards, reach out to their elected officials, and let it be known uh, that they're interested in um, supporting some of these pro proposals when they come forward, um, supporting the development of more housing. Um, you know, there's a benefit for all of us to have more diversity in our communities, um, the, the, um, the diversity of housing type in our community. Folks are not going to be able to age in these uh, well-resourced communities unless there are opportunities for families to be able to downsize into smaller. Mm -hmm. um, children who graduate and, and want to stay in their community aren't going to be able to stay in their community without a broader diversity of housing type. And we're not going to get to a place where we have uh, desegregated our um, communities by race and economics unless we add to the diversity of housing type in communities. Mm -hmm. So I hope that people will engage in this and start to raise their voice and let elected officials and zoning boards know um, that there's support and that it's not simply opposition. Karen Bois walton again is the president of Elm City Communities, the Housing Authority of New Haven. Karen, thank you for joining us here on the show. Thank you. Jackie Rib Thomas will stick around again. She's a reporter for the Connecticut Mirror. Coming up, protests can let policymakers know what changes community members demand. But what will the Connecticut General Assembly actually do to address housing disparities in our state? The Senate chair of the legislature's housing committee joins us after the break. State Senator Saud Anwar, you can join us too. 888-720-9677. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, the State Education Commissioner, Dr. Miguel Cardona, joins us. If you're a parent or teacher, we hope to hear from you for that during that conversation tomorrow. Now, the Connecticut General Assembly will meet in a special session in a few weeks. Their agenda will likely include strengthening police accountability measures, but some lawmakers and community members want the legislature to address policies around housing, too. Joining us now on the phone is State Senator Saud Anwar, who's also co chair of the Housing Committee in the Connecticut General Assembly. Senator Anwar, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lucy, for having me. I want to start with a question that Stephen brings up, and it's a good one. He wants to hear about uh, Connecticut's Law 830G. The intent was to encourage affordable housing. And he says, I wish a town like mine had more. But some residents across Connecticut have seen the statute as a stick developers can waive if they don't get what they want to be profitable. So first, tell us what is 830G and uh, again, how it's being used uh, or followed across our state. Well, I can tell you, uh, first of all, I want to just thank you for shining light on, on this important issue and then having Jacqueline, uh, who has done, Jackie, who has done some amazing work uh, around uh, raising the awareness. 830G allows, uh, requires actually, or uh, in our state, to have all the municipalities participate in affordable housing and have at least a threshold of 10% of their um, housing stock to be uh, affordable. And the sad situation that we have is as of 2019, the numbers suggest that out of the 169, only 139, uh, sorry, 139 have not uh, been able to take care of their ownership and responsibility in this part. And that's why when you hear from Karen earlier that there's such a long waiting list, that is because nobody else is doing their share of being a good, responsible citizen and being part of our state in, in many respects. If you look at... Um, 
most of our uh, towns uh, and the municipalities, they have not fulfilled their obligation. Uh, some are very close to fulfilling it, but the uh, majority of them have not. And that is part of our challenge that uh, the opportunities, the housing stock, the opportunity for affordable um, uh, upward mobility for our citizens is uh, part of the systemic problem that our state has, which is much more than the entire region. Jackie, when Senator Anwar talks about so many communities not uh, following this law and uh, not being responsible to include affordable housing in their communities, how does that happen? How are towns able to get around this? So 830G, just to to tackle 830G for a second, um, the reality is it's, you know, some a lot of people do view it as a stick, but the reality is that it hasn't really moved the ball that much in some of the communities. In about one quarter of Connecticut's municipalities, the actual share of their housing stock that is is affordable has actually declined. Um, and, and in dozens of other communities, it's just been stalled. Um, to be sure, there are plenty of communities that have increased their affordable housing, um, but in many more, it has not. Um, and so the way that developers are able to use that is to go into a years-long fight in some communities to get housing built. Um, you know, they know that it's going to be a long fight in some communities to, to get across the finish line. Um, and everything is sort of taken, you know, at at a, a long tedious process in order to get what should be a quickly approved project. You know, it's not for nothing that um, three dozen of community of the state's towns throughout the state have no new multifamily housings over the last three decades. Um, So, I mean, we're not talking about a huge amount of increased in affordable housing since that law was passed. Um, And by the way, that law does not mean that, um, does not help out with a town that doesn't have public sewage. Um, So you can't go around local zoning to get sewage for a project. So, um, I mean, if a town like Weston doesn't have sewage, then you're not building affordable housing there. Mm. Senator Anwar, I mentioned this special session, I think, in the third week of July, if that's the latest. Uh, tell us about how you and other Senate Democrats have are working on policy to change uh, these housing policy, housing and zoning laws in our state. Um, I think, Lucy, one of the most important things that we as Senate Democrats and now our colleagues in the the House Democrats, uh, at least a significant proportion of them, have uh, clearly stated is that if we are just going to look at uh, police accountability only, we are actually not managing the real issues. We have to go beyond it. And and, uh, housing is one of the central parts of the systemic racism that has existed in our state and in our country, but more so in our state. And and if you look at uh, trying to fix that, we cannot make a real impact in the uh, outcomes of future health outcome, education outcome, um, opportunity outcomes for our citizens, uh, our African-American community, our Latino community, unless we actually address the housing challenge. And it is a central piece of uh, uh, the problem that uh, we are facing, amongst a number of other things, but uh, that's where 
thankfully we have all united and we just want to make sure our colleagues uh, from the other side of the aisle would also recognize that uh, this is a collective responsibility which is holding our families back our state back and the economic opportunities in our state back as well Senator, you were the former mayor of South Windsor, which is a suburban community. Uh, when we hear Karen Bois Walton from the Housing Authority of New Haven talking about, again, local control, the fact that we don't have a county seat government in the state, municipalities have a lot of power when they craft their laws. I mean, how do you get past uh, what a, a town or even residents who may be listening, they feel like they should be able uh, to control what kind of developments come into their community. They really do want, they don't want to see their community change. They like to, they want to maintain the, the quote unquote character of the town that they've chosen to live in. So um, when I was serving as the mayor, the, the, the zone, the planning and zoning department is independent of the, the state, the town legislature. However, we actually work collaboratively, and, and um, that's where people apply. We have had uh, seven and a half or so percent in our in our town of affordable housing in South Windsor, and we have uh, had uh, opportunities to grow, but there has been resistance, and and that resistance. Uh, comes from um, uh, from Democrats as well as Republicans, both. Um, and that's the same idea is that people try to use the mindset of uh, uh, character maintenance, but also the cost of education associated with uh, having younger families come to the towns because the cost of education and the taxes have been uh, increasing. And I think that's our battles. And my hope is that at this critical moment, there is going to be an awakening of a collective responsibility in, in all of our towns, the affluent towns, to say, look, we have to do our share. We have to take care of uh, um, the, the citizens who actually, in our state, our numbers are uh, very uh, sad. We're 50% of all African Americans and 50% of all Latinos live on 2% of the land of the state of Connecticut. No society can maintain itself. No society can sustain itself if we continue to stay on the current path. Um, then we also know when we move some of our families from low-opportunity areas into high-opportunity areas, the children' performance is excellent, and we actually are losing out on the next generation of scientists, uh, doctors, lawyers, uh, engineers, you name it. We are losing out on those opportunities, and that's our collective loss. So this is a time we need to educate everyone who has been saying no to the bills. I have been putting those bills since I got elected, mm. and, and those bills are killed every time. And then I'm going to put them back in again and hoping that we will have an awakening to do the right thing this time. Uh, Jackie, you've been a reporter for some time in Connecticut. This is an election year, as Senator Anwar says, both uh, Democrats and Republicans uh, in the legislature. Uh, they've got to listen to their constituents as well, uh, residents who don't want to see local zoning be encroached on. Realistically, what can happen this year? I think it depends, really. Um, you know, I wouldn't want to, I don't have a crystal ball, so I don't know whether or not. Um, Folks like Senator Anwar will will be able to um, get the sub, more suburban Democrats on board um, in his chamber. Um, 
ditto for the House, um, whether or not they'll be able to get the votes. I mean, the reality is the special session is happening just a couple months before the election where every single member of the General Assembly is up for re-election. Um, it, it's not too long ago that the Senate was split 50-50 between Republicans and Democrats. And so, um, you know, there's a reason why these bills have never been passed. Um, you know, legislators are would essentially be asked to give up some of the local authority that um, they're, the people who elected them, many of the people who elect them feel is appropriate at the local level. Um, and so it, it just remains to be seen whether or not this is the moment that um, people say enough is enough. Senator Anwar, we just have a, uh, less than a couple of minutes now. Uh, what do you want to be hearing from Governor Lamont on this issue? I am hoping that he would join the effort and, and have a comprehensive solution to the systemic racism that has happened in our state and uh, join the legislators to undo it and then have a new beginning uh, and a new era. Uh, there's no shortcut to this. This would require true leadership, and, and I know he has that leadership. He has shown it during this pandemic, and he's seen the ugly face of racism in this pandemic, so I know he's going to join us in, in doing the right thing. You hope, but uh, have you heard from him at all about this issue? No. Well, we'll hope to uh, follow up with you, Senator Anwar. We thank you for joining us here on Where We Live Again. Senator Saud Anwar, co-chair of the Housing Committee in the Connecticut General Assembly. Thank you so much, Senator Anwar. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Also with us, Jackie Rabe Thomas. You have got some future stories coming out about this topic. We can't wait to read them for ProPublica and Connecticut Mirror. Jackie, thank you for joining us today on the show. Thanks for having me. Again, today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. I'm Lucy Dalpathanchel. As always, thanks for listening.